The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the race in my members-only inner circle club. You will receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here's a special offer to my podcast listeners. If you join the inner circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership, I'll send you a free, personally autographed copy of my book, Gettysburg, and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com. Use the code FREEBOOK at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com. Code FREEBOOK. This offer ends January 31st. On this episode of Newt's World, You know him from his hit Discovery Channel show, Dirty Jobs, and his podcast, The Way I Heard It. As a TV host, writer, narrator, producer, actor, and spokesman, his performing career began in 1984 when he faked his way into the Baltimore Opera to get his union card. I'm pleased to welcome, as my guest today, Mike Rowe, a great entertainer and great American. Mike has made a career out of shining a light on the lives and experiences of American laborers. Mike became known as the dirtiest man on TV. He traveled to all 50 states and completed 300 different jobs, transforming cable television into a landscape of swamps, sewers, ice roads, coal mines, 
oil derricks, crab boats, hillbillies, and lumberjack camps. For this, he has received both the credit and the blame. For Labor Day, we're sharing stories about the skilled workers who've crossed Mike's path, the importance of work, and Rose's fascinating life. Dirty jobs there everywhere, just take a look around. Down the street or up the stairs or even underground. You don't need to borrow bag and you don't need to rob. All you've got to do is get yourself a dirty job. I am particularly excited this Labor Day to have somebody who I think has come for many Americans to personify the work ethic, the legitimacy of work, the requirement that we understand how many different jobs have to be done for a civilization to succeed, and somebody who's also become, in his own right, a household name. Mike Rowe, I'm just thrilled that you're with us. Newt, hello, and thanks. I'm flattered. It's great to talk to you again. Did you ever imagine when you were younger that you would end up doing national television, doing podcasts, writing books, speaking to the Congress? I mean, you know, you become sort of an institution in your own right. When you were in your teens and your 20s, did you have any notion that this is where your journey would take you? Absolutely not. I hadn't really ruled anything out. I was a fairly curious kid, and I had parents who encouraged me to look at everything from every angle. But no, I grew up next to a man who happened to be my grandfather who could build a house without a blueprint. And I was determined and convinced that I would follow in his footsteps. But the handy gene, as you may know, is recessive and it bounced over me. And so while I grew up surrounded by farmers and tradesmen and I had a real appreciation the kind of man my grandfather was, who incidentally only made it through the seventh grade, but wound up a master electrician, plumber, steam fitter, pipe fitter, welder, mechanic. I thought that is what I would become. I really thought I was destined to be that person. And it took me a few years to get it through my head that my assumptions, my dreams, and my expectations were in no way lined up with my skills. And so... You know, as a teenager, even into my early 20s, I think I was a lot like those contestants on American Idol who realize often for the first time that they can't sing after all in front of a few million people. Once it became clear that I wasn't going to be that guy, I went to a community college. I took every imaginable course I could, the broadest variety of topics I could find. And at $26 a credit, back in those days, you could afford to do that. I stayed in that community college for three years. Then I went to work. Then I went to a university, eventually got a degree in communications. And Horace gumped my way into the entertainment business. And way leads on to way, as Robert Frost said. And then one day I looked up and I was 42. I had had a pretty decent freelance career. My grandfather was ill, 90 and dying. And my mother called me at my desk at CBS in San Francisco and said, Mike, before your grandfather dies, wouldn't it be nice if you could turn on the television and see you doing something that looked like work? And <laughs> I laughed and I said, yeah, that would be great. And so I went out and I started filming a series that turned into Dirty Jobs. And that's how it happened. 
It took 42 years. It was a weird mix of serendipity, good luck, and hard work. But you never know how the story ends, but that's how mine began. You originally pitched it as something like somebody's got to do it. Mm-hmm. And it evolved into Dirty Jobs. And then it went on for eight, eight seasons. And this all grew out of your mother calling you? That's correct. Growing up next to a guy who was heroic in my eyes, the standing of a true skilled tradesman in this country, over time, his image, her image, has devolved. And people we once viewed as heroic and almost magical in their, in their powers to, to fabricate a thing really became very much, uh, well, invisible almost. You know, we, we just simply stopped valuing that kind of skill and that kind of person. And so on a personal level, uh, I did it too. I became fundamentally disconnected from a lot of things that fascinated me as a kid the way things are made, where our energy comes from, where our food comes from. Those things fascinated me for a long time. And then for a long time, they didn't. So between the guy my grandfather was and the person my mother is, the two of them basically conspired to inspire in me that weird combination of guilt and ambition <laughs> that led me to do something that turned out to be brand new. And you're right. The the segment was called Somebody's Got to Do It. It first appeared on a local show in San Francisco called Evening Magazine. People were equally horrified and fascinated by my adventures in a sewer, my encounter with a giant rat, and the things we learned about the infrastructure from an anonymous sewer worker in the course of shooting that very strange episode. And yeah, here we sit, talking about it all these years later. You couldn't script it if you tried. I I think uh, it was John Gardner who said something like, if you overvalue philosophy and undervalue plumbing, neither your pipes nor your ideas will hold water. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Your detour, however, has a couple of very unique sort of American qualities to them. One is, as I understand it, you had a high school chorus teacher who changed your life. I did. I've always believed that the happiest, most prosperous people I've met can always look back into their past and find a Mr. Holland. You remember Mr. Holland's Opus, that movie with Richard Dreyfus. I had a Mr. Holland. His name was Mr. King, and he was my high school music teacher. And he was one of a couple people in my life who just came along at the right time, grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, and turned me in a slightly different direction. In this case, it wasn't so slight. Mr. King was a world champion barbershop quartet baritone in a a quartet called the Oriole Four, which won the international championship back in 1971. And I didn't know any of this. I didn't know that there was an organization called the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Barbershop Quartet Singing in America. I had no idea that my music teacher, who also happened to be a Golden Glove boxer and all-pro football player, who didn't have any of his original teeth but wore these insane dentures that he swapped out every couple of minutes just to freak his kids out, this force of nature cured my stutter. I had a stammer for most of my young life. He fixed me. He used music to do it. He forced me 
onto a stage to audition for a play I didn't want to be in demanded I learn a monologue and forced me to consider a different path. And thanks to him, I not only got a look at the entertainment industry in a way that I think I never ever would have been afforded, but I got a chance to join the course of the Chesapeake, which is 120 men, many of whom were veterans of the Second World War, Korea, and Vietnam, who every Tuesday got together and sang the old songs. And when I say the old songs, I mean turn of the century, Tin Pan Alley type tunes, four-part harmony, straight out of Norman Rockwell, right? These quartets come together, they form this giant chorus, and I'm suddenly inserted into their midst. And for me, at 17, 18 years of age, I'm suddenly exposed to a whole different kind of music that none of my friends in school are listening to. But more importantly, I'm sitting in Johnny Jones Tavern, you know, in southeast Baltimore, drinking a draft beer while four older men sing unapologetically sentimental songs and weep as they sing and laugh. And then there were war stories, you know, so I just got pulled into, luckily, this very strange part of our culture where a certain kind of music and a certain kind of patriotism were elevated. And I got a weekly dose of that at a very young age. And it too ultimately informed a lot of what I would do over the coming decades. Now you moved from that kind of barbershop quartet and all-male chorus, and I find this almost as amazing. So you moved to the Baltimore Opera Company. I did. This is quite a journey you're on. Yeah. Well, look, I referenced Forrest Gump a little earlier because sometimes I really did feel that once you accept the idea that you're on a very crooked path, then the twists and turns and the zigs and zags are no longer alarming. They just become kind of amusing. And that's where I was when I was 23 or so. I was in a barbershop quartet that was singing for money on the weekends all over the country. I was still in school during the week and working part-time at a computer company and looking for anything that just felt incongruous and different. And one of my friends in the barbershop society said, listen, you could actually get your union card if you were singing in the opera. And I'd been frustrated at that point because I knew I wanted to get into entertainment. I thought commercial work would be fun, but you can't get your Screen Actors Guild card unless you get a Screen Actors Guild job. You can't audition for those jobs unless you have your card. So I was frozen out of the union in a weird way back in 1984. But the loophole was, if you become a member of the American Guild of Musical Artists, the union that has jurisdiction over the opera, then you can buy your Screen Actors Guild card. So the analysis was really simple. The odds of me auditioning my way onto a sitcom or into a movie were horrible. The odds of me faking my way into the Baltimore Opera were not good, but they were slightly better. So I learned the shortest aria I could find. It was the coat aria from La Boheme. It was in Italian. It was sung by a guy named Samuel Ramey. I had a Sony Walkman 
And for a week or so, I walked around Baltimore listening to this guy sing these words. I had no idea what the words meant. Right? I'm just listening to him sing these sounds. And I eventually get them in my brain. And I go to an open call for the Baltimore Opera. And I sang for the chorus master and a genius named Bill Yanutzi, who spoke six languages and realized instantly that I had no idea what I was singing about. And when I finished, he said, Mr. Rowe, you have uh, no idea what you're singing about, do you? And I said, no, I don't. And, and they laughed. And as it turns out, they needed young men with low voices. And at the time, I checked both boxes. So against some very long odds, they let me in anyway. And that opened the door to the American Guild of Radio Artists and the Screen Actors Guild. And my plan, honestly, Newt, was to sing, you know, in one or two performances and then leave because I had no real interest in opera. But as it turns out, the music was terrific. It was a world-class orchestra. The people were fun. <laughs> and I stayed for seven years. When we come back, Mike goes from the Baltimore Opera to QVC host to Dirty Jobs. You've been listening to my conversations with Leo Grillo, founder of Delta Rescue. Delta Rescue is celebrating 40 years of saving animals and providing love to abandoned dogs and cats. Delta Rescue was the first no-kill shelter in the United States and now the largest care-for-life sanctuary of its kind in the world. The stories that Leo has shared on my show, like Delta, a black Doberman that started this organization, all the way to the 35 dogs Leo found while hiking in the Angeles National Park, just warmed my heart. Delta Rescue continues to grow. The on-site hospital is staffed seven days a week with veterinarians and state-of-the-art equipment. Delta Rescue treats all diseases and conditions in up to 1,500 dogs, cats, and horses. Delta Rescue is an incredible cause, and we know we can't take our money with us when we leave, nor do we want to leave it to the IRS. Let's help our furry friends today and support this amazing cause. Go to deltarescue.org newt for information on donations and getting involved. And right now, there's some new entertaining content streaming on the site. Newt's World listeners can go to the site for two free family movies today, Magic, starring Christopher Lloyd and directed by Robert Davi, and The Rescuer, starring Leo Grillo. Enjoy these two heartwarming movies for us animal lovers. Go to deltarescue.org newt. That's deltarescue.org newt. So, towards the end of that time... Something comes up and you end up applying for QVC, which has certainly got to be a very big jump from the opera. How did that transition occur? Again, utterly unscriptable, totally random. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was 1990. The opera was in the middle of a production, but we weren't on stage much during the intermission and the subsequent 40 minutes of time where I didn't need to be on stage. There was a football game being played in Baltimore, and I wanted to watch it from the bar across the street. It's called the Mount Royal Tavern. So I walked over to the Mount Royal Tavern dressed as a Viking and drank a draft beer while I planned on watching the football game. 
But the football game wasn't on. The bartender was another actor in town, and he was watching QVC. I didn't know it was QVC at the time. It was just a big guy in a shiny suit selling pots and pans. But they were in town doing a national talent search. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, well, I think I'm watching a harbinger to the end of Western civilization. But I'm also looking at potentially an actual job in the entertainment industry. So I went down the next morning, auditioned, and got hired. And three days later, I was sitting in Westchester, Pennsylvania, in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., trying to make sense of an endless panoply of indescribable products, the kinds of things you might expect to find on the midway of a carnival and those machines with the claw. I didn't know. I mean, this is a crazy collection of products. We got Noah, we got the Ark, dogs and cats living together, and every other form of uh, beast on here as well. For $27.79, it's the sailing ship Noah carry bag. You simply grab the handle at the top, pick up the carry bag, and go on your merry way. And I spent the next three years sitting there in the middle of the night figuring out how live TV worked and trying to make sense of the products they would bring me to sell. And did you actually sell products? Millions and millions of dollars. You know what? I can't actually say I sold them. Uh, people bought them. I was a non-traditional salesman. Because I had no idea I would actually get hired for that job and no real understanding of what it was, and really nothing to lose, I was very honest with the viewer. They had no training program in 1990. There was no way to know who was going to work and who wasn't. So I was hired because I was able to talk about a pencil for eight minutes, and then I was put on a three-month probationary period. And the way it works is if you don't go up in flames during the next three months, and if you show up every night for work on the graveyard shift, then you actually get a contract. But they didn't actually train us. They didn't actually tell us what the products were. That, that was up to us to figure out. But I didn't know that. And so the first night I was presented with something called the Health Team Infrared Pain Reliever. And it was it purportedly <laughs> would relieve arthritic pain in your joints with infrared light. Now, I, I have no idea if this is true or even possible. It seemed crazy. I remember sitting there with this strange item that looked like a flashlight with a, a red bulb screwed into the end. And I looked into the camera and I said, hi, everybody. My name is Mike Rowe. It's my first night. This is the Health Team Infrared Pain Reliever. I don't know what it does, but if you own one or if you've seen one before, it would be terrific if you could call the number on the screen, ask for the producer. His name is Marty. He'll put you on the air and maybe you can tell me how it works. And the phones lit up. And so for the next three hours, I sat there as these insomniacs around the country called in to tell the new guy how the products he was supposed to be selling actually worked. And it was one of the great lessons for me, you know, in my own life and certainly a lesson in humility. And in honesty, once I realized the audience would help me, that I didn't have to pretend to know more than I did, well, then TV got really interesting. And QVC turned out to be probably the greatest training ground for me that I could have possibly had. The lessons I learned there, they continue to inform just about everything I do. You stay there for three years, but then you go on and you stay on television, right? When I left QVC, they fired me three times. Uh, justifiably, but always hired me back inexplicably. But when I finally left in 1993, 
I left with a toolbox that I never thought I would have before. It's interesting, you know, my grandfather told me years before when it became obvious that I would not follow in his footsteps, that I was not going to be a traditional tradesman. He said, look, Mike, you can be a tradesman. Being a tradesman is a state of mind. You just need a different toolbox. It took me a while, but the toolbox I assembled when I left QVC really allowed me to audition for just about anything in Hollywood or in New York and get booked a lot. I wasn't looking for a full-time job. I love the idea of working like a jobber, like a tradesman. When I was 30, I moved to Hollywood and I booked a lot of work on a lot of projects that I'm not really proud of them. I wasn't looking for the work to provide me with any real sense of accomplishment. I was just looking to do a good job on any project, whether I was writing, producing, narrating, or impersonating a host. And then enjoying three or four months a year to travel and take my retirement in early installments. And I did that from 30, probably until 42, when Dirty Jobs came back around. It was really a miscalculation. Like I said, my mom called, suggested I pitch something that looked like work. And I had no idea Discovery would order 300 of them. We made a deal for three episodes. But again, just goes to show the minute you think you have it figured out, something else will come along and make you think twice. Why do you think Dirty Jobs took off? Timing. A couple of things happened. My pitch to Discovery, on the one hand, was kind of different. You know, that at the time, that brand was defined by experts and authority. So whether it was Jacques Cousteau or David Attenborough or Jane Goodall, big expert voices that could satisfy curiosity in a way that, you know, we all grew up with and remember fondly. But it seemed to me that something was shifting in TV. Reality TV was becoming a thing. But more than that, it seemed like authenticity was slowly replacing authority. And the idea of being curious didn't necessarily have to come hand in glove with being terribly informed. The Discovery brand is a curiosity brand, and satisfying that curiosity has to come from some sort of expert. But my question was, what if the titular figure in a show isn't the expert? So if I can find anonymous people who really know what they're talking about in a variety of vocations, then maybe we can satisfy curiosity in a way that doesn't require me to be a host, but something more like a guest or a cipher, or an avatar. So it was a clunky pitch, but the network said, okay, let's try that. And they hired me to go on a series of expeditions in this sort of avatar format. And along the way, they said, maybe we could do a few hours of something that looks a little more structured that allows us to introduce you to our viewer. Well, at that point, I had done Somebody's Got to Do It, for CBS. I had this idea for Dirty Jobs. They didn't really see it as on brand, but they said, give it a try. And so we tried it. In 2003, the Discovery Channel was testing all kinds of different programs. And they had this one, which was terrific, and that one, which was amazing. And then they had this thing called Dirty Jobs, which is like, ah, it's a smart aleck in a sewer doing these weird things. They put it on the air. 
And it was the viewers who really told them what the situation was. You can't argue with the people, and the people wanted to see a version of themselves doing a version of work they recognized. How rapidly did the word of mouth spread and indicate that you had a winning show? At that point, it was overnight. And this is interesting, too, because there was no Facebook then. At least, it was just beginning. There was no real social media. It was still 2004, 2005. That was just kind of becoming a thing. But Discovery built me a chat room, the Dirty Jobs chat room. We called it the mud room. And fans of those early episodes all went there. And I made it really clear. I took all the lessons from QVC a decade and a half earlier, and I put them onto this new thing. And I said, look, Dirty Jobs needs to be programmed by the fans. I want all the ideas we do for the show to be suggestions in the Dirty Jobs chat room, this mud room, they called it. And I don't want to do second takes on the show. I don't want to ask people to perform. And that was a fairly revolutionary thing. You know, we hired a documentary camera to film the making of the show. And that footage wound up becoming dominant. And so as a viewer, you got a really honest, unvarnished look at what I saw on a dairy farm or in a sewer or building a bridge or in an opal mine. You saw what I saw. And as a fly on the wall, you got a fairly authentic look at a job you might not have known existed that took place in a town you've never been to, performed by a man or woman who's utterly anonymous. It was that level of reality that people responded to, and we knew it immediately because we were looking at thousands of suggestions that we got from people who were saying, Mike, where do you meet my grandfather? uncle, brother, cousin, sister, mom, whatever. Where do you see what they do? So there really was a hunger in the country in 2005 for a lot of people who I think felt both anonymous and forgotten to show the country what they did and how they added value to the larger mosaic. So you're developing this remarkably successful show. You have a great brand. And along comes Deadliest Catch. And you're offered to do either show, and you choose to host Dirty Jobs, but narrate Deadliest Catch rather than the reverse. What was your thinking? What really happened was the first couple episodes of Dirty Jobs went on the air, and they really did cause some serious cognitive dissonance with the network. What do you do when your audience loves something that you don't want them to love? It was very confusing time. And so they kind of took a deep breath and said, look, Dirty Jobs, we don't really want to run with as a series. We have these other expeditions we want you to take, but we also have this thing that we're not quite sure what it is, but it's up in Alaska and it's crab fishermen. Why don't you go up there and work as a greenhorn, work as a host, go out on the ships and let's see if there's actually a show up there. And again, this is 2004. We don't know what Deadliest Catch is. Dirty Jobs hasn't really found an audience yet. And I went up there and wound up staying for six weeks. I worked on a couple of different boats and basically did my best you know, Stone Phillips impersonation, doing a kind of a documentary, 
kind of a magazine type series look at what derby style crab fishing was in the Bering Sea. And Newt, what it was, was unlike anything I'd ever seen. You can't script the Bering Sea, right? It's an utterly authentic work environment, terribly dangerous with men doing a hard job under difficult circumstances, some prospering and some dying. I went to six funerals in six weeks at the end of 2004, early in 2005. So when we came back from that trip and we looked at the footage, it was obvious that there was something enormously important going on up there in the way of a potential show. But it also became obvious that for whatever reason, immersing me into work was a good formula. So they circled back and looked at dirty jobs and said, okay, if we order this, and order Deadliest Catch at the same time, you can't host both. So to answer your question, I chose Dirty Jobs, A, because it was deeply personal, and B, because my name was in the title. And when in doubt, <laughs> pick the show with, with your name in the title. So I opted to run with Dirty Jobs, and they invited me to narrate Deadliest Catch. And incredibly, I'm driving into San Francisco to narrate the final episode of season 15 of Deadliest Catch, which is still on the air. It's truly a phenomenon. Next, Mike talks about the foundation he created 11 years ago to award scholarships to people in the skilled trades. I was delighted when the first sponsor of Newt's World was Oxford Gold Group. I love entrepreneurial startups of people who are eager, willing to go out and do new and different things. And as a historian, I know that having a balanced portfolio is a very important thing. And they offer financial information and background information that I think uh, is very helpful. So whatever you decide to do in the end, I think you'll find the information they have is really worthwhile. And that's why I'm delighted to introduce you to the Oxford Gold Group. Most of us still remember what happened to our 401ks and IRAs back in 2008 during the financial crash. In a flash, millions of hardworking Americans lost more than half of their retirement and savings. Many of us still haven't recovered those losses, even as the stock market reached record highs. Did you know that while the stock market crashed, the price of gold and silver skyrocketed? In fact, investors who had the foresight to diversify a portion of their retirement and savings before the 2008 meltdown watched as the price of gold and silver went up over 300%. While millions of Americans lost their nest eggs in the stock market, many others were able to make gains most people had never seen before. Call the Oxford Gold Group today at 1-833-327-9472 or visit oxfordgoldgroup.com slash newtsworld and request your free investor's guide. Investing in precious metals with the Oxford Gold Group is safe and secure. We tailor investment packages to suit any portfolio. Don't risk the future of your IRA, 401k, or savings on paper investments. Protect your retirement and savings with physical assets like gold and silver. Nobody knows when the next financial crisis will happen. Get prepared by talking to the Oxford Gold Group by calling 1-833-327-9472 or by visiting oxfordgoldgroup.com slash newtsworld. Financial security is just a phone call away.
you then reach out in a philanthropical way and you create a foundation which really is designed to help us remember the work matters. Talk some about the MicroWorks Foundation, what you hope to achieve with it. By the middle of 2008, 30 Jobs was on in 200 countries. It was the number one show on Discovery, and it had launched directly or indirectly a couple of dozen other hit shows. I had done well as a result. And in the summer of that year, July 2008, the economy was starting to teeter. And on the show, you know, I always took the crew out for beer afterwards. I always invited our hosts to join us. And I always wound up having long conversations with small business owners who had prospered in this dirty jobs world. And I always ask them, you know, the same questions. Typically, what was their biggest challenge? And what I heard from 2005 until 2008 and to this day consistently was the biggest challenge was finding people who were enthused and willing to learn a skill that was actually in demand and then show up and apply a work ethic to that skill. Horatio Alger kind of light motif, but I heard it over and over again. And when the economy tanked in earnest and the unemployment rates were headline news every day, seven, eight, nine, 10% every day, I was still hearing from people that their biggest challenge was finding qualified workers. And it just seemed like such an odd competitive narrative. Some other narrative was going on in the country. Nobody was talking about the skills gap. Everybody was talking about the number of unemployed people. And wherever I went on dirty jobs, I'm still seeing help wanted signs. So it just seemed like in some way we were talking past each other on the national level. And at the time, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, we had 2.3 million open positions, many of which didn't require a four-year degree. They required training. So on Labor Day of 2008, I launched MicroWorks, which began really as a PR campaign for those 2.3 million unwanted jobs that to me represented the existence of opportunity at a time when we were being told almost across the board that opportunity was dead. And at that time, I remember shaking my head and thinking, we can't really believe the reason we have 10 million unemployed people is because we don't have 10 million jobs available. We can't really believe that. But of course we do. We think unemployment can be cured by creating more jobs. Even as today, we have 7.3 million jobs open. So I was just fascinated by the dynamics of the skills gap and by the existence slash non-existence of opportunity, depending on how you see it. And I wanted to shine a light as best I could on the jobs that really and truly existed. That's how it started. What it turned into was a scholarship program for the skilled trades. Today, we've awarded somewhere between five and six million dollars for training for steam fitters, pipe fitters, welders, mechanics, heating, air conditioning, electricians, plumbers. It is kind of remarkable because the foundation truly is the legacy of the show. And the show is really a tribute to my grandfather, 
and the scholarships are proof positive that his jobs, the jobs I grew up watching him perform, are not only still very much in demand, but still offer terrific opportunities for people who really want to learn that skill and apply themselves. When you show the world a welder who's making $150,000 and happy, you create in much of the country the same kind of cognitive dissonance that we did on the show when we portrayed people in a sewer covered with the worst muck there is who are prospering and understanding their role in the scheme of things is in no way minor. That's the goal of the foundation. That was the happy, unintended consequence of the show. And what you're doing really has a moral purpose. And I think that's a very important part of the regeneration and revival of America is to recognize that work is a moral good and that people should expect to work and that all work has an inherent dignity. Correct. All narratives need a protagonist and an antagonist. All stories need a villain, an enemy. And a very popular narrative today has cast work as the enemy. The proximate cause of your unhappiness is the fact that you need to work, as opposed to the proximate cause of your prosperity is your opportunity to work. That has been a seismic shift over the last two generations. And it's understandable. It's not rational, but it's not really a mystery. We've made work the enemy. And once you do that, then your arguments are going to be informed by that belief, whether you're arguing over the minimum wage or rent control or social security or welfare or, you know, any political program, you know, you can almost always figure out where somebody's coming from by their belief around work. And so, you know, to answer one of your earlier questions, that's why Dirty Jobs worked, too. At its core was one of the few unifying realities of life. Labor, which, of course, is different than work, right? But these two things, the business of earning a living, can either be seen through the lens of incredible opportunity or through the lens of drudgery and despair. So much of what we're teaching our kids to expect vis-a-vis work lines up on the drudgery and despair side. And so when you see a show like Dirty Jobs, you see people laboring hard and sweating and struggling, but then you also see them laughing and prospering. That was a really important juxtaposition to present to the country. And it still is, because the only way you're going to challenge the idea that work isn't the enemy is to offer examples. I stay in touch with the thousand or so people who have gone through our scholarship program, because now I can go back and I can find a kid who five or six years ago learned to weld and who today is up on the high plains in North Dakota or maybe down in the Gulf, making $180,000 a year with no debt you know, raising a family, right? And that story needs to be told because the path to prosperity still exists vis-a-vis a skilled trade. It's not about a four-year degree. It's not the best path for the most people. $1.5 trillion 
in student loans is currently on the books. We have 7.3 million jobs currently open, the vast majority of which don't require a four-year degree. But we're still telling our kids that if you don't get the four-year degree, if you don't sign on the line and assume whatever the debt is, then you are going to wind up with some kind of vocational consolation prize, and you're going to spend the rest of your life pushing the boulder up the hill. It's a false, nonsensical argument, but it's real, and we've been selling it for a long time in much the same way we've been lending money we don't have to kids who are never going to be able to pay it back to train them for jobs that don't exist anymore. It's a busted system. So if you had a chance to talk personally to every 12-year-old in the country, but as individuals, one-on-one, what would your core message be? Put it all on the table. Look at everything and don't limit yourself to the things you think you're interested in. Your passion is important. Your dreams are important. But if your strategy is to follow your passion and chase your dream, if that is your fundamental strategy, then you're taking a horrible risk and you're limiting yourself in ways you don't have to. Put things on the table that you're not interested in. Explore things that you have no affinity for because you're 12 and you don't know anything. And when you're 18, you're not going to know much more. And when you're 50, you're not going to know nearly as much as you think you do. The idea that your success and your happiness could be way over here in some place that you hadn't considered is the thing that I want you to consider, because that's how it was for me. I didn't follow my passion. I took it with me. And as a result, I'm very passionate about where I am at 57 years of age. And as a bit of revisionist history, when I look at the people on Dirty Jobs, the people that we featured who resonated the most with the viewers, they were those people, the people who didn't follow their passion, but who were nevertheless passionate about whatever it was they wound up doing. Somehow or another, that's the message the 17-year-old who's trying to figure out, do I borrow 40, 50 grand a year to go to a four-year school, or do I take some time, maybe in a community college, or maybe in an apprenticeship program, or maybe just a gap year, not a gap year to screw around and, and waste time, but to figure out where your competency and your desire meet, because that's the trick. And The more we tell kids that the secret to their happiness is to follow their passion, (laughs) I think the more we're sending them on a snipe hunt. I can't imagine a better message for this Labor Day or a more relevant message for every American. I think you've already had an amazingly fascinating opening phase of your life, and I have a hunch that the next phase is going to continue to evolve and end up being even more interesting. You have a book coming out in a little bit over a month, called The Way I Heard Her. Can you tell us just for a minute what led you to write the book and what's in it? The book is named after the podcast, The Way I Heard It, which I started writing a couple of years ago as an homage, really, to Paul Harvey. He famously had a radio program called The Rest of the Story, where he told 
five-minute biographical mysteries. All of them had a twist at the end, so you wound up learning something you didn't know about somebody you thought you did. And I just thought they were terrific, you know, the kinds of stories that you can't get out of your car and until you hear the end of. So you get to guess along the way who he's talking about. That project started as a podcast for me a couple of years ago. It was a hobby that became completely out of hand. And now it's a book, and it's an odd book because it takes 35 of those aforementioned biographies and juxtaposes them with 35 autobiographical remembrances of me. So it's really half memoir, half mystery, and kind of, I hope, an interesting look at how we remember history with a capital H and, of course, our own histories, the way we recall these things, the way we talk about ourselves and the people we admire and maybe not admire, and all smashed together into a hot mess of good-natured recollections, I think the publisher's calling it. So it'll be out in October, but people can pre-order now, right? That'd be terrific. Micro.com slash book. And yeah, we're really excited about it because it's a great way to talk about the podcast, which has been gangbusters for me and my foundation. And really just a fun way, hopefully, to make history interesting and a little more accessible, as I'm sure you know, making history attainable and titillating even for the masses is a tough trick. So that's what the book attempts to do in some way, just as the podcast does. Mike, thank you for a great conversation. You know, celebrating Labor Day, we ought to all remember the importance of work and the American value of making an honest living. By the way, Mike Rowe's new book, The Way I Heard It, is available for pre-order now and will be available everywhere on October 15th. Thank you to my guest, Mike Rowe. You can pre-order Mike's new book, The Way I Heard It, and read more about Mike's foundation, microworks.org, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, we're exploring the topic of electromagnetic pulse, EMP, with my guest, the author of One Second After, William Fortune. The gamma rays bursting off the weapon start to act like ping pong balls, and they set up a gamma ray burst that keeps getting broader. It moves at the speed of light. It hits the Earth's surface. It overloads almost all electrical carrying capability. And a split second later, it's off. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
the Westwood One Podcast Network. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.